Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Ladines Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. Originalism sucks. Let me explain why. That's Ellie Mistal, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again as we continue to explore our fundamental civil and constitutional rights. My name is Jackie Gardena. I am the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Jackie, it's great to be back with you today on Sidebar. My name is Mitch Winnick, and I am the Dean of Monterey College of Law. We also have campuses in San Luis Obispo, Santa Rosa, and Bakersfield. Our guest today is Ellie Mistal. In my opinion, Ellie Mistal is a legal force of nature. He's been able to bring awareness to important and frequently controversial issues by speaking truth to power. He serves as correspondent to the nation, the publication, not the country, covering issues related to justice, the courts, the criminal justice system, and politics. He writes the magazine's monthly column, Objection. Ellie's first book, the best-selling Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, was released in March of 2022. Prior to joining the nation, Mistal was the executive editor of the digital legal publication Above the Law. He is a frequent guest on MSNBC and Sirius XM. Ellie, welcome to Sidebar. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks, Jackie. Nice to be here. You know, you get to that point in, in the writing process when people refer to your first book, it always was with a little edge, right? Of just like, like there's more to come, right? And you're sitting there thinking about your proposals and you're like, oh man, I really got to work on that. Ellie, I hope there is a second book because I have to say this book in terms of its accessibility, its brilliance and its humor is just so powerful and with that voice you can reach so many people that need to be reached so i hope you do have another book in the works thank you jackie and honestly the accessibility is actually a great place for us to start our conversation because that's one of the reasons why i agreed to do your show it, it is important to make law accessible to people that is how it was always intended the law is not supposed to be something that comes down from on high is opaque and regular people can't understand it. Now I understand as lawyers, look, we have very expensive educations and we like to show that expensive education off with our Latin and our clever turns of phrases and the intricacies of our, our knowledge base. And I'm not saying the law is simple. I'm not saying that it's uncomplicated. It's a complicated thing, but it is important that people in the legal profession, certainly people like me who who kind of talk and write about the law for a living, it's important that we bring the law to a point where normal people, regular people, literate people can understand it. Because it's only through, from my view, it's only through understanding how our laws work that people become 
enraged enough to fix it. Absolutely. And reading your book, anger and rage is a good word, but you write in such a way that you have that humor or a reverence to it that it tempers it a little bit. That makes it, for me, even more accessible. And Ellie, let me just say, as Jackie's saying that, on a personal how do you keep that balance? Because so many of the things we read about and many things we've talked about on this program, they just make you so mad. How do you then bring that back inside and share the humor side of it as well? It's a great question, Mitch. I think, first of all, I don't try to bring it back inside. I try to sit with that anger and wallow in it a bit and then figure out what I'm actually angry about. It's easy, and I think most people can be angered by the outcomes, right? The outcomes of certain decisions, the outcomes of certain processes. I try to sit in my anger and think through, how did we get here? And focus my anger on the backstory, if you will, not just the unjust and and horrible outcome. So to start, I don't try to hold the anger back. I try to actually understand my own anger and then explain why I'm angry to other people. That's a lot of the work. The special sauce is trying to keep a sense of humor about it, or at least a sense of, I'm certainly not lighthearted. Again, it goes back to my idea of trying to make sure that this stuff is accessible to as many people as possible. Ellie, your style in writing about the law is to make it approachable, but you tackle really hard subjects, race, inequality, access to justice. How do you frame these topics so that it doesn't have the opposite effect of turning readers away? I try to think about it in terms of making sure that people are also having a reason to keep reading. And so it's not homework. It's not something that's being forced on them. It's something that they want to read and want to learn about. And I think humor is one of our best tools as humans to get some of those messages across. It goes back to my above the law days. And you mentioned that I used to be executive editor of that site. But when I was on ATL, I really understood it's it's going to sound weird. It's incredibly hubristic, right? To be a writer, right? It's incredibly, you know, you got to put your, your head pretty far up your own backside to be a writer, right? I mean, (laughs) other people have like work and jobs and real things they're doing. And you're going to sit there and be like, wait, 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 please. I need 10 minutes because I have thoughts. It's an incredible thing, right? Most normal people don't do that. And so I kind of, it's part of, to me, the, the, the contract. You give me your 10 minutes, I'm going to do the best I can to make sure those 10 minutes are at least, if not enjoyable, at least entertaining. But I don't want to just give you information. I want to give you your money's worth for your time to justify why you took your lunch break or for my book, why you decided to put me on in your car while you're driving to work. There's got to be some payoff there beyond, here's some things that people should know. Like, yeah, that's... That only gets you so far. We are going to take a brief break from our discussion with author and commentator Ellie Mistal. And when we return, we're going to discuss his motivation and reasoning for writing his recent book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. 
Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Welcome back. We are talking with Ellie Mistal, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, a book that uses history, political insight, law, and humor to address some of the most challenging aspects of the Constitution. When you were writing the book, talk about the lens that you took, the Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, and why you, you took that lens and put it on our founding document. Right. So you'll note, Jackie, that it's not a guide to the Constitution for Black people. That's not what I was trying to accomplish. I'm not even sure if I'm qualified to write that kind of book. Instead, it's a Black Guy's Guide. And what I mean by that is to look at the document and I write this in the book, to look at the document from the perspective of a person the document was designed to ignore. Because when you come at it from that angle, when you come at it to me from the bottom up as opposed to the top down, I think certain things about the document and certain things about the Supreme Court's interpretation of that document are put into stark relief. It's one thing to read the Fugitive Slave Clause when it's a kind of fixed point in history. It's a whole different thing to read that and be like, they talking about me. That was my people who were the property that absconded with ourselves. What? So you, you kind of really stick on these points. Ellie, I would imagine that in going down this path of history, of relooking at the Constitution in the context of race, it was important to put in context your own family of origin, your own family's story. I can trace my roots back like most black Americans, they didn't keep great records, you know, beyond like 23 and me, I can't tell you if it's, you know, Senegal or Cameroon or Sierra Leone. I can't, I can't, but unlike many black Americans, I can at least go all the way back to a man, Zacharias Pittman, who was freed from a plantation when Sherman's army came burning his way through the South. So we can go back to a guy. And that's an important part of my perspective on the document. The Constitution didn't free my ancestors. Thomas Jefferson did not free my ancestor. The First Amendment did not free my ancestor. Sherman and fire. Somebody had to burn out the captors of my ancestor. Constitution meant nothing to that guy. So if you start there, the very next question you ask is why? Why did they do it? How did they do that? How could they out of one side of their mouth talk about freedom and equality for, for all and out of the other side of their mouth, not just hold an entire people in bondage, but it's a black guy's guide to the constitution. I spent a lot of time talking about the inequality of gender rights throughout the founding document and how literally half the population didn't get the franchise various ways in people in, in which people who were not economically affluent didn't get the franchise you know so 
the classical liberal bourgeois revolution, right? That happens in England in the 1600s, America in the 1700s, and France in the 1800s. These bourgeois revolutions left out a lot of people. We're going to take another quick break to hear from our sponsor. But when we return, our guest, Ellie Mistal, commentator for The Nation and author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guide's Guide to the Constitution, will discuss the problem with using original intent to interpret the Constitution when the original document intentionally disenfranchised more than half of the population, especially those who were not white, landowning men. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Ellie, the other thing that you write is you leap forward and say, now those who cloak themselves in original intent, such as Justice Clarence Thomas, ignore everything you just said. They pick and choose pieces of it that are convenient to their current perspective without addressing more than half the population is not actually included in the Constitution. So yeah, so the elevator pitch of the book is, I'm trying to make the law accessible from a says from the perspective of a black person. The inside baseball lawyers pitch for the book is, originalism sucks. Let me explain why. That's the inside baseball background of the book the the origin story goes back to when i was 17 years old if you're a kid you're in you're in high school in america and you like acting but don't have a singing voice mock trial might be right for you um, and so despite my various terms as like chorus person number three i mean i also did mock trial i was good at it our team was good at it we went to the national championships when i was in high school we didn't win, but at these particular national championships, the final hearing was judged by, among others, Anton and Scalia. We go, we lose, we watch the teams that won. Then afterwards, Scalia holds court, like, you know, does an auditorium, 100, 150 high school kids, and you get to ask them questions. And I got a question. So, you know, 17 years old, I get up and I ask my question. I'm like, Justice Scalia, you believe in strict constructionism, because that's what they called it that then. But how do you square your belief in strict construction of the Constitution with the objective fact that sometimes the people who wrote the Constitution were wrong? For instance, segregation. So how can you square strict constructionism? You know, it's a, for a 17-year-old, not a bad question. And how did that go over? Scalia goes, <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're teaching these kids? That we still believe in segregation? <laughs> and so, you know, you're in a room full of 150 kids. The authority figure laughs. Now I've got the whole damn auditorium laughing at me like I'm uneducated. He ne Man never answers my question. Just laughs not. and then moves on. 
And then I sat back in my seat. First of all, I was happy I was black because you couldn't see me blushing. I was, <laughs> I was very aware that that was, that was a positive externality of my skin tone. I sat back in my seat and I was like, I'm going to get my answer. My book is the answer to that question. Ellie, as law school deans, Mitch and I get to hear some pretty amazing stories about what motivates our students to pursue a legal education. Your experience of being motivated to study law by Supreme Court justice while still in high school is just another great example of how you so effectively weave your personal experiences and observations into your writing. Let's take another brief break, and when we return, Mitch and I want to talk with you about something very much in the current news, the lack of a code of ethics for the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Roberts has been outspoken in his insistence that the court and the current justices know how to make good ethical decisions and don't require supervision or oversight. And yet, we now know, thanks to the investigative reporting of ProPublica, that Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas, have accepted millions of dollars of unreported gifts and lavish vacations from a conservative Republican megadonor. When we return, we're interested in your thoughts about the ethical behavior of the Supreme Court. The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Monterey College of Law. I am a first-generation law student. I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede. To learn more or apply, visit MontereyLaw.edu. So let's follow up a little more with the court, because you just wrote an article about the U.S. Supreme Court's refusal to adopt a code of ethics. I wrote an article on the same topic. I'm fairly certain that you have broader readership than I did, but we at least agree on the fundamental principle. I find the Supreme Court's refusal to adopt a code of ethics simply inexplicable. Tell us a little more about your opinion. Why is this so important? Let, let's start with where the Supreme Court starts. It is difficult in our current constitutional system to impose a code of ethics on the Supreme Court, so the story goes, because the Supreme Court is not created by Congress like all the other lower federal courts, which do have codes of ethics, but is created by the Constitution itself. And so there is a separation of powers argument that says that only the court can govern itself, only the court can punish itself, because Congress has no authority to govern, regulate, or punish the Supreme Court absent the constitutional process of impeachment. You can impeach the judges, but you can't punish them. You can't make them recuse themselves from a case. That's the, the standard constitutional argument. Are you kidding me? You're telling me that the esteemed founding fathers wrote a system where we're going to have nine unelected, unaccountable wizards who hold a veto power over the other two branches of government, but that we're not even allowed to check them for basic issues of corruption and unfair dealing through the statutory elected process. 
that that's the system that's the democracy you want to tell me we're living in so that literally we're in a world where any one of those nines could take money from a litigant uh, with business in front of the court rule on the bene on behalf of the moneyed interest and there's nothing we can do Th that can't be to quote star trek once you remove the impossible whatever is left however improbable must be true so once you remove the to me impossibility that that is an okay system then the alternative that we in fact can and should and must impose a basic code of ethics on the supreme court must be true right so that's that's where i start and then my article starting from there kind of goes through some different ways i'm sure you have some ideas too mitch about how you actually get it done because because as much as i think that that standard constitutional argument is wrong i understand that if congress passes an ethical an ethics statute the first thing that happens is that they are sued and then it goes in front of john roberts in the supreme court hey right. john do you think Congress has the power to tell you no? And John's going to say, in fact, they do not. But Ellie, if the court refuses to take the responsibility of adopting their own code of ethics, and you don't think they will comply with a code that is drafted by Congress, what other options are there? How do you go about actually forcing the Supreme Court to adopt a code of ethics when it's going to argue that it doesn't have to? The other idea I have, the kind of common idea I have here is like, well, you cut their funding, right? Con ah. Congress is the one with the powers of the purse. The Supreme Court justices want things like pens and chairs and security. Congress is what provides for all that. All the Constitution provides is that they can walk out to the Washington Mall and have the oral argument. I mean, that's if they want a nice building to do it in, that comes from Congress. Charles Jay, one of our previous guests, he actually talked about a practical reality of a internal panel to pre-review ethics violations that would still be within the federal judiciary in as close to peers as you're going to get, senior judges or senior federal judges who've retired that are on this panel. I mean, there are some practical ways that this could functionally work. It'd certainly be better than having nothing. And we know that there are practical ways to make this work because every other court is subject to a statutory code of ethics. So that if, oh, I don't know, off the top of my head, one of the Supreme Court justices spouses is accused of aiding and abetting a coup against the government, you know, just to like throw a hypothetical example out there, there would be a way to force that justice to recuse themselves from cases that might expose their spouse's culpability in the plot to overthrow America. Should that have ever happened? The alternative that there's no way that it's just, it's up to the good graces of each individual justice to determine when they are, are or are not conflicted out. That's just bonkers and not the mark of a properly functioning judiciary, not the mark of a properly functioning government. Ellie, this is a good point to take another brief break. When we return, Jackie and I want to shift the conversation from the U.S. Supreme Court to discuss your opinion about how judges should be selected for state courts. As our listeners are likely aware, there was recently a hotly contested state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin in which reportedly more than $15 million was spent on a state court judicial campaign. 
setting new records for campaign spending on a state judicial election. Although the race was theoretically nonpartisan, it ended up being viewed as a highly partisan referendum on issues such as abortion rights, gerrymandering, LGBTQ rights, and other highly politicized issues. When we return, let's discuss how state court justices are selected and the impact that the selection process may be having on the justice system. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome back. We're talking today with Ellie Mistal, correspondent for The Nation and a popular and sometimes controversial commentator on the state of our American legal system. Jackie, you have some questions for Ellie about the selection process for state judges and the perceived increasing politicization of the judiciary. We spend a lot of our time talking about the federal courts and the Supreme Court, but especially with the way that the Supreme Court is ruling right now, an enormous amount of power is shifted to state constitutions and state courts. What are your thoughts about how state court judges are selected and what reforms at the state level we might need? I'm so glad you asked this question, Jackie, because this is, first of all, this to me is the fallow point of my book. This is the part of my book that I don't get into, and I'm not working on this, but if I were, one of the ideas is to do a book about this focused more on the state courts. It's harder because there are 50 of them, but state courts are where most people already experience the law in their life, whether or not they're getting sued, whether or not their family member is going into jail whether or not this environmental spill is going to be cleaned up in their town or a lot of this is going to come down to the state courts and our state court judicial system the picking the appointment of judges the qualifications of those judges not only are they all over the map where you have some states that are doing well and some states that are doing kind of poorly even within states they're inconsistent unreliable and regularly produce people who in a better process wouldn't get within 20 feet of a courtroom, maybe as a defendant. But state court systems end up in a much more cronyism situation, even when you have situations where you have elected state court panels. As Mitch mentioned earlier, the election of judges is currently in the news. When it comes down to appointment versus elections, what are your thoughts? I'm not actually a huge fan of electing judges either, because how are we to know the information that we have to make the choice on a judge is so sparing, almost by design. A lot of times judges get in trouble when they are lenient towards a criminal and that criminal then goes on to commit future crimes. That will get judges in trouble. But leniency is a good thing. We're supposed to be able to trust their discretion I think, Mitch and, and Jack, you'll probably have seen this in your own careers. Most people have no idea what makes a good judge. 
That's true. Most judges don't have an idea what makes a good judge. (laughs) (laughs) They just know what they do. They have no operative idea between, they could not, most people could not tell Learned Hand from like Jojo the Clown if they were both wearing a black robe. Like they wouldn't be able to actually tell the difference. We don't have a good method for picking judges. We certainly don't have a good method for picking diverse judges and making sure that the candidate pool itself is open to everybody. There are all these little ways that we cut off the ability of potentially qualified candidates and end up with cronies. Continuing that ethics discussion, because when we talk about there being a statutory code of ethics for other courts, that doesn't necessarily apply to the state. We had David Pepper on who wrote Laboratories of Autocracy, which focused on Ohio. And he was discussing how the chief judge of the Ohio Supreme Court or the chief justice is the son of the governor and decided to sit and rule on a case in which his father was one of the parties and was a dissenting opinion, much like Justice Thomas was a dissenting opinion. And there was no way to to have him conflicted out. There was no way to force him to recuse himself. So it seems like ethics at the judicial level is missing at the state level as well. Ellie, let's take a brief break to hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, Mitch and I have questions about the recent proliferation of book banning that is going on at the state level. I have a suspicion that you just might have a few opinions about protecting the First Amendment freedom of speech and expression. We'll be right back. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. We are talking today with the incomparable Ellie Mistal, author and legal commentator. Ellie, we would like to shift the topic again and talk about book banning. As far as we know, your book is not on any of the ban lists yet, but as legal educators, Mitch and I are very concerned about the efforts of state legislatures to restrict the First Amendment protections for freedom of speech and expression, particularly in academia. Absolutely. We recently spoke with Suzanne Nossel, the CEO of PEN America, about defending First Amendment rights that are being threatened by book bans and educational gag orders that are actually being enacted at the state legislative level in a number of states. As we see the teaching of history being politically attacked and being statutorily defined by certain ideology, your book is steeped in an understanding of the complex history of our country. How do you see these attacks on education and specifically the teaching of history affecting our ability to move towards a functioning pluralistic democracy? Attacks are not new. These attacks are not new. This thing where we are trying to make it so that people can't get information, people can't trust the information that they get, and so that the only true source of information that is disseminated to all people equally 
is the information that comes from the dear great leader. We've tried that before in Western civilization. We called it the Dark Ages. This is the authoritarian playbook from the fall of Rome until the Enlightenment. That's how we rolled, right? This is, there's not a single thing that you see a Ron DeSantis doing in Florida that you couldn't find in Machiavelli's The Prince. It's the same stuff again. It's the restriction of information in the Dark Ages before the printing press. People couldn't read Latin, so they couldn't read the Bible, which in those times was the authority. We'll leave that where it is. <laughs> so they couldn't read it for themselves. So they could only believe what their local pastor or clergy told them about the Bible, right? They couldn't actually see it for themselves. And it was one big way of keeping control over the population. Again, and that's what we're seeing today with the, not just removal of history, but the complete whitewashing of history. They're trying to make a world where Martin Luther King came down from heaven to absolve America of all of its racial sins. And then everything was fine if black people would just get over it. That is the linear, uninterrupted view of African-American history that these people want us to believe. And we know that other points in world history, this kind of thing has worked. Unfortunately, revisionist history is not limited to the historical recognition of slavery and racial segregation in the United States. U.S. Representatives Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene have both associated themselves with outspoken Holocaust deniers. I remember when I was young, teens, early teens, tweens maybe, and I first learned about Holocaust Remembrance Day. I remember asking my parents, like, why do we even have this day? Because if we don't remember it, these people will start to say that it never happened. The point of Holocaust Remembrance Day, it's to remember what actually happened because the survivors knew that if they didn't, not too far in the future, people would start to say that it never happened at all. And they were right. We see that. And that's what we see with black history. We see this across the board. We see this with gay rights, where people try to say that gay people don't exist. They're trying to erase that these things are even happening. We not only went to the Gutenberg Press, but now we have the internet where everybody is their own publisher with no guidance, no governance, no restriction, no filters, no anything. No more gatekeepers now, boy, right? But because of that, it becomes extremely hard to completely erase information in the way That's that true. they used to be able to, to do that, which makes me feel like the anti-history people are doomed to fail. But I try not to be too determinist about that, because even though I agree with Dr. Martin Luther King that the long arc of history bends towards justice, the in-my-lifetime arc, I don't know about that. Ellie, let's take one final break, and when we come back, we would like to talk about yet another constitutional question that is steeped in current controversy, the Second Amendment and the cycle of gun violence that's plaguing our country. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.
Welcome back to our conversation with Ellie Mistal, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Your chapter on the Second Amendment, you point to the fact that gun regulation was the norm until really very recently. And that idea of the right to own a gun for self-defense was inserted into the Constitution in 2008. So having an historical understanding of that is so key. But how do we get out of the cycle of gun violence? It doesn't seem like we're going to be able to legislate our way out of it. So how do you see us being able to emerge from this? I think the most heartbreaking and disgusting thing about the Supreme Court's ruling in a New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin was the bit where Clarence Thomas just stridently wrote that justices should not look at statistics on gun violence before making decisions that will lead to more gun violence. It was one of the most anti-intellectual bits of Supreme Court writing I have ever read. But in terms of a lack of intellectual curiosity, it is on that level of just, I can't believe he fixed his mouth to say it. Not being able to look at statistics of the death that decisions cause is basically an admission that they know that they are ruling for more death and more blood. And they're just trying to make themselves okay with it. That's the heartbreaking part of it. It's wrong in the law, it's wrong in the facts, it's wrong in so many ways. But it's a knowingly wrongness in that opinion that I think is just devastating. How do we get out of it? We don't, as long as these people are allowed to rule over the rest of us. Because you're right, Jackie, there is no legislation that can be passed by any state anywhere to address gun violence that survives this Supreme Court. And I think even if... We were successful in somehow shifting the Supreme Court decision. A commentator recently speaking about the Michigan State shooting. There is literally in the Michigan State Constitution a right to self-defense written into it. So even if we were successful in somehow moderating the Second Amendment, we still have to deal with state constitutions and state courts' interpretation of those constitutions. Depending on how successful we are in shifting the Supreme Court. And we know this is true because, like we were talking about earlier, we had gun regulations that worked pretty freaking well for 150 years. It's sheer lunacy to, to do our gun laws through federalism, through 50 different states. That's just stupid at this point. And at some point, we're going to need five justices who get that. The, the other reason why I know I'm right about this is because every other industrialized country in the world has already figured it out. The answer is to get rid of this particular interpretation of the Second Amendment and go back to either something akin to what we had in the 1800s or repeal it outright and start the hell over. Ellie, let me pick up on that start the hell over idea. You have somewhat not tongue-in-cheek said maybe we should burn it all down and start over. But you actually throughout your writing and, and your conversation really do give us some hope that there is a constitutional framework that does move us towards a pluralistic democracy. And your hope does cut through all of the challenges and historical recognition of the problems. 
What needs to happen? What do each of us need to do as lawyers, as law professors, as law deans, as good citizens? We ask this question in each show. What should we be doing to feeding that hope, to moving it in a positive direction? The Constitution contains some great ideas, some really, really good ideas. Not, not all of it, but there are some good ideas in the Constitution. The problem with those good ideas is that we have never once tried to apply all of those ideas to all of the people living here at once. To the extent that I have any hope, it is just that fool's hope that one day we might try. One day we might get sick of the bigotry and sick of the death and sick of the inequality and actually try just to apply the Constitution to everybody. When we're talking about hope, when we're talking about keeping that hope alive, start talking to me about what the country should look like and let's work it from there. Well, Ellie, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Stay with us and hear Mitch and Jackie's thoughts on today's conversation. Jackie, this has been a great conversation with Ellie Mistal. I knew it was going to be. I knew it would be somewhat controversial. I knew it would be challenging. And those are the things that make Ellie such a valuable voice on issues related to law justice, the courts. And I, and I must say the part that is so valuable to me is when he makes us rethink the foundation of the Constitution, when it's not just this religious document handed down from the mountain on high, but it was merely a document at a point in time that was imperfect and clearly has needed adjustments and modifications. And that we shouldn't be afraid to discuss those types of changes and to work for those type of changes. It, it just put it in the perfect perspective for me. Yeah, and I, I, one of the things I really loved about how the conversation started was his describing his desire to make the law accessible. I know, Mitch, that's something that you and I are passionate about. Uh, and I think his book does that. And one of the things that I really loved about the book, and we saw it in his talk with us here, is he brings forth images that makes the absurdity so obvious. So, and it, there was this line in the book that literally made me laugh, which is he's basically talking about original meaning. And he said the the understanding of the Constitution should not be based on Clarence Thomas having a seance with his ancestral captors. And I was like, wow, what an image that is. And the absurdity of it makes it even more so when we think about that's how we're trying to figure out how we should live in today's world. So he's just masterful at that. And his brilliance comes out in his ability to make it accessible and his ability to bring that irreverence and imagery into it. There's a piece that I, I wish that we could have talked more with him about it, but there's one thing that he did say about the legal profession that I wanted to push back on during the conversation, but thought best of it, because um, I think he would have pushed back even harder. And Mitch, you and I have actually talked about this, and we've actually written about this. Um, lawyers are not just there to serve clients. 
we have an obligation to society. And I think it's important that legal educators and legal education make that as much a part of what students learn in law school as it is about kind of the basics of the law and how to serve clients. Well, Jackie, I, I, as you guess, I couldn't agree more. And I believe that's why we also think that I would expand this beyond your comment just to law students. It's why we think Sidebar brings these issues to the general community because we're not here to just debate whether this law or that law is as it should be. We're trying to understand what are the fundamental goals. What are we trying to achieve as a society, as a democracy? And these are the infrastructure pieces that what Ellie actually says quite articulately, these are the pieces that allow this to work, not just now, not just 20 years ago, but perhaps 50 years from now or 100 years from now. But it never stays fixed. It is something we need to be working on every day, every year, because society continues to be challenging. And, and he calls us out on that from the day one of the Constitution and today. So it's, it's not something that he believes gets fixed. But I loved when he summarized and said, but it is something we should be talking openly about and honestly about. In the preamble to the Constitution, it specifically identifies that we're trying to move towards that more perfect union. And what Ellie was saying is we have a basic framework to help us do that, but we're not going to be successful unless we step back and actually ask ourselves, what does that more perfect union look like? And then we can determine how it is we're going to get there. One last thought that comes to my mind when you say that is that at this point in time, I think we are caught up in an echo chamber of the minority. And this is of the extreme minority, both left and right. And we get distracted by that. And Ellie calls that out but when he talks about hope i believe it also calls those of us who are more more pluralistic in the middle more open to the fair and open dialogue about these issues that's where the hope lies for me that that there really is the majority of all of us who do want this same outcome i do believe we're temporarily distracted by the extremes and that we need to push back against and work with. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to hear what's on your mind. And you can do that by going to sidebarmedia.org. Thank you to our producer and musical muse who composed and performed all of the music in today's episode, David Eakin. And thank you to our marketing director and social media millennial, Gogo Zoger.